Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 1, Episode 60, Fishing Ethics. Listener and friend Kevin sent me a message over the holidays asking for me to put together my thoughts on fishing ethics, so we're going to sit down here in the next half hour or so. Let's talk about ethics in fly fishing. This podcast is brought to you by Newcast, N-U-C-A-S-T dot U-S. You can find their products on ProGuideDirect.com. They sent me a little care package of hemostats, scissors, and nippers to try out, and I can say so far I like all of them. And I have the ones that are multicolored, so you know I will not be getting these confused with the other anglers at events like the beer tie where you can end up with scissors that are not yours because most fly tying scissors look the same. So until all of you go out and buy these scissors, mine for now will be unique. So it's bad enough that we put a hook through fish's mouth, scare the living crap out of them, and drag them out of the water for a couple seconds and throw them back. If we didn't want to go into fishing ethics, we wouldn't, I guess, even bother talking about just the fact of what we're doing to them. But let's just skip that for now. A lot of these fish we angle for wouldn't be there if it wasn't for us. I'm talking stocked fish and fish that live in habitats where our work and our tax dollars, our donations, the clubs in and Organizations we belong to protect the environments and uh, enhanced environments where fish live so we can further fish for them. I'm guilty of a lot of the following things. I've tried myself to limit some of the more offensive things I've done to fish in the past. I tried to educate my clients and others on the water on how to fish a little more ethically. And I'm going to share some of those thoughts with you right now. I think you should treat a fish like you would a child. You're not going to drop them. You're not going to throw a child. You're not going to basically abuse and mistreat them. And also, fish are too valuable to be caught just once. I don't know if that's the Lee Wolf quote or not, but that has to do with catch and release. I know in some places like Germany, there is no such thing as catch and release. It's the law that you got to take your fish home. But I don't eat fish 
most of the fish we catch are not edible, so we put them back in the water. So let's talk about ethics of catching fish, hooks, fighting fish, landing and handling fish, retaining fish, photographing fish, releasing them, killing them. So let's talk about catching. Don't fish for threatened or endangered species like greenback cutthroats. I used to get some nasty emails and online comments about fly fishing for bull trout in Idaho. People saying they're endangered species. They're going to be extinct if you fish for them. And I did my research on the laws when I fish for them. And I thought it was perfectly fine to post me catching bull trout on the internet. I didn't say where I caught them. I even did a podcast and story about catching them. But one guy sent me a, a really long email or comment or whatever submission to the website arguing his case. And I thought it was valid. And I, I responded to the guy and I never heard anything back from him. I contacted him through Facebook and I think even through um, YouTube. But the guy never responded. So maybe I will put my huge bull trout video back up on the internet. Um, there's definitely some ethical things from the viewer standpoint where you don't see the whole picture and it can be misconstrued that I am dragging this fish around and I didn't release it properly. But once you shut off the video, I sat there for 30 minutes and revived this fish. It was not an endangered species. You are, are allowed to fish for them in Idaho, so there's nothing wrong with it. But one of the guys from our old Orvis store was telling the story how he was really hungry and killed a fish in Colorado and, and lit a fire on the shoreline and ate the fish. And then he thinks it was a greenback cutthroat, which is um, an endangered species. So you don't want to be doing that. Who knows if the guy even had the right fish at that point, it could have been um, a great white shark and he probably didn't know the difference. The guy uh, was just getting into fly fishing and probably didn't know his species identification too properly and the fact that they really only live in a very small niche in Colorado and I don't think he was fishing there uh, but yeah ethically you don't want to be bothering fish that are just trying to survive it's it's unethical don't set the hook like you are a bass fisherman on a glitter boat in a tournament you see these guys set their hook like they are trying to pull an anvil off the bottom and they pull up a 10 inch bass I don't know what kind of damage it does when you rip a fish's head like that, but I'm just going to assume that setting the hook that hard, probably not a good idea. Don't know what damage it does to the fish. Remember, fish don't have lips. You're setting it in the membrane between their maxillary and mandibular bones. Um, sometimes we set them, it goes through the eye, it goes through the head. But for the most part, you're hooking them in their mouth area and jerking it that hard not ethical you probably are screwing that fish up in the long run and we don't know what happens to a lot of these fish once we release them back into the water and they swim away we don't know all the statistics on fish morality um, which is not the word i meant to say but they're probably upset but the mortality is the word i'm looking for that uh yeah we don't know you you fish all the time and you see a floater coming down river was that natural or is that from an angler upstream i don't know a lot of this has to do with migrating fish and spawning fish, which puts a high population density in one location at the time. And people do some pretty unethical things. You can just go on to YouTube and look at snagging where the guy takes the top of a beer can and ties it to his line and a hook and swears at the salmon ate it, even though he's hooked it right behind the dorsal fin. So uh, let's talk about some of the techniques people use on those rivers. You, uh, you've heard it. Uh, talked about on the salmon river all the time um, people do it for salmon they do it for snakeheads on the river it's unethical to floss a fish what that means is the fish is breathing so in the mouth i mean just take your hands like you're making fun of your girlfriend yapping like that is what they're doing with their mouth they're opening it they're ingesting oxygenated water that water is going to pass over their gills, and there's a countercurrent membrane system where oxygen goes into the blood 
through their gills at the same rate that carbon dioxide is being released. It looks like um, oncoming traffic on a one-lane road from above. That's kind of hard to explain. But it's a counter um, current where oxygen comes in and CO2 releases, just like I'm doing now, and I have to open my mouth. So what the angler will do is they will cast and let the fly sink, and when that fish opens its mouth, it they drag the leader across the mouth and set the hook, and the fish is on. Uh, people do it for snakeheads, like I've said before. Until I see a snakehead during the spawning run, March, April, May, up on the tidal tributaries and the tidal Potomac, until I see one actually eat a fly, I'm going to say 100% of those fish have been snagged or have been flossed. Because it's not that hard to drag a fly across the fish's face and stick a hook in there. The hooks are pretty damn sharp. We had a muskie do this by accident a couple years ago. We were fishing a popper and a copper john dropper. And the muskie was crashing bait and just happened to swim across our leader. And the tension of the line when my guy lifted the rod set the hook in the muskie's mouth. So he flossed the fish. We got it to the boat, and there's the video on YouTube where I'm like, I don't have a net. I don't have jaw spreaders. Don't have huge hemostats, so let's just break off this fish. It was on 4X tippet anyway, so it's pretty amazing we landed a three-foot muskie on such light line, but it happened. Um, It wasn't intentional, so I won't say it was unethical, but it happens. And you see it on the Salmon River. You know, There's always people that are going to tell you salmon don't bite when they are in the rivers well they do bite it's uneducated people and if you're that uneducated for them you shouldn't be fishing for them that salmon do bite out of aggression we know that they don't bite to feed because they no longer have a digestive system we've learned in previous podcasts that when the salmon go up into the rivers their digestive system astrophies they don't need to use the resources anymore for um building fat they're using the resources to spawn for gamete production so they're not eating to feed themselves they may still have an instinct to chomp on something that was food source but they're not doing it with the intention that it's going to go into their belly and be broken down into energy for later use that's not happening so don't floss your fish when you do have fish of that many congregated in one area and your line goes underneath them and you lift your rod and the hook gets stuck in them, and you're trying to get it around their mouth, but it gets in their belly and anal fin, that's called lifting. Lifting is quite unethical. It's illegal in most places. When you see someone on their final drift just dink the rod up and jerk it really fast, they're lifting. They're trying to, you know, their drift is done. They're trying the last ditch effort to hook a fish, and you can call people out on that, especially if they're on the other side of the river because then they can't come over and mouth off to you. We had um, that crazy guy, Tommy, I'm sure I've told the story before, where there was a guy lifting and snagging fish on the lower black hole, and he threatened to cross the river and hold the guy's head underwater, wrap his rod around his neck until he wasn't breathing anymore. And then Tommy just resorted to biting people's spinning line. The spinners were the snaggers that day, and he actually would bite their spinning line when they would snag a steelhead or salmon and and go past him people i've I've heard will take out lighters and knives and, and cut your line if you're a snagger take some uh big cojones to do that on the river but you should you know ethically tell people hey man that's illegal and you call the wardens so snagging would be just trying to hit that fish anywhere you can with a hook I've got the videos of snaggers during the snakehead run where it's just a weighted treble hook and that fish is just sitting there and they lower the treble hook. And these things, I mean, they, they're the size of the palm of your hand. They're huge weighted treble hooks. I mean, they're as thick as a chopstick, a pencil, if you will. I mean, they're they're thick. And they put the hook under the fish and just lift and it's barbed. And a couple of the barbed hooks get stuck inside the fish and they just lift them out onto the rocks and take them home. It's illegal to do. It's it, it's unethical. In D.C., you are not allowed to snag fish. There are places where you can – I know people snag paddlefish in the Mississippi and the Mississippi River tributaries. 
Mississippi has a very big drainage, so there's paddlefish up there. Um, people snag kokanee salmon in places where they run, where you actually see signs that says snagging is legal during this time of the year or not that time. So don't snag when it's on where it's illegal. That is unethical. And lining would be just your fly line crosses over the fish and you stick them. You're going to hook them in the gills, in the side of their cheeks. I mean, all over. You're going to get them in the tail. And you know a foul-hooked fish, especially when they're caught in the tail, they fight differently. It's more power. You're not pulling them. They're pulling you. And what you should do is break off, if you can, and legally hooked fish. Just easier. Sometimes you pull up scales. Like during the shad run, you usually know when you foul-hooked a fish because it's a different fight. It's a lot more vibrations it's a different fight because they're not pulling with their mouth like this with the hook in it it's gonna be different with that being said you can usually pull up your hook and you'll see their scales on the bend of your hook and that's how you know that you foul hooked a fish you either lined it flossed it snagged it or something else inadvertently openly and caught it without the fish biting the way it is the sporting tradition to do so with that being said, for a fish to be sporting or what we're doing to be sporting, the fish has to eat or bite the fly, eat it out of attempt to consume it or bite it due to aggression. It's pissing the fish off and it bites it to get out of the way. So what intruders are for, popsicles, a lot of our shad flies are tied that way. It's more of an aggressive strike than one where the fish is eating it. Next section is going to be freshly stocked fish. Come on, man. These fish are scared. They've been in a cement spillway their whole life, being fed a couple times a day, and now they're out in the wild. You remember being a freshman the first day of school and you had those dudes that were shaving you know, by third period and had body odor, and you had the guy that looked like a caveman who would eat the Larry Kubiak-sized lunch. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. That's what those fish feel like the first time they're dumped from a truck. I mean, they've just been in a car ride. And now they're dumped in a water. It's completely different for them. They haven't acclimatized. Is that the right word? They haven't acclimated? What would be the tense of that? I don't know, but yeah, just let them, let them chill out. Let these fish, let their, what left of their instincts that haven't been bred out of them, let them figure out what is and what isn't food. Let them find where they can hide because there's going to be otters and birds and who knows what else going after them now. And their whole life was pellets. Now there's all this stuff drifting by them. It's, insects and minnows and twigs and trees and cigarette butts they've got to you know test it out and find out what's food and what's not food so don't go the first day with you know a little bit of power bait which is unethical on your fly and go try and pull them out let they have give them a sporting chance you know they're freshly stocked fish because they're all hurtling together trout don't want to be all hurtled together like that normally there's competition they've Got the nooks and crannies where they want to be in the river. That's more comfortable for them and where they feel safe. But, yeah, you go down to Accutine Creek the day after stocking and you'll find one pool of 40 rainbow trout safety in numbers. It's I don't think it's ethical to go fishing right away for stock trout. I personally don't like a lot of stock trout because the colors on them are nasty. Their noses are raw from bumping into cement. They don't have any pectoral fins because they've been rubbing up against the side of a tank their whole life and they've just they're kind of gross usually but then again sometimes you'll get an absolutely perfect rainbow trout pulled out of homes run down the street and you're amazed that thing came out of a hatchery all right let's talk about hooks um fish barbless most of the time it's it's not for the fish it's for you it cost me a hundred dollars to get a barbed hook taken out I know how to do the mono method. I know how to push it through. Usually you're going to be too squeamish to push it through your meat or someone else's. Um, 
it doesn't always work, the mono method. We've seen that when I hooked my finger almost a year ago. I had to go to the hospital, and the amount of blood that came out when she pushed it through was disgusting. It, my fingertip was a faucet. So it's easier to have a, a barbless hook. That's why I buy Sabre brand barbless from flyshack.com, and I will be spending about 80 or $90 at the Somerset Fly Show stocking up on hooks for Somerset Lancaster Fly Fishing Show where I'll be tying. I'm not Somerset. Lancaster and Winston-Salem. And just for the year, uh, be doing hopefully a lot of custom shad orders and stuff we need for the beer ties for tidal Potomac fly rotters. So, uh, yeah, they're $6.99 for 100 You can't beat that. Limit your hook size if you don't need a monster hook. I am constantly pulling out these, like, 5 ot stinger hooks from trees along the Potomac. And I'm thinking, my God, you know, I'm catching the same largemouth bass on a size 14 Prince Nymph. Bass will eat little things, too. And it does a, a little bit of damage, but it's not puncturing them and putting this giant hole where... You know, if they were on land and they took a drink of water, it would dribble out the side. I'm sure there's a YouTube video of somebody with a hole in their face or a stoma in their neck, and they drink something and it comes out the hole. Well, think about the bass now that it just ate that freakishly big hook. Limit the size hook. I like, you know, I, today I sat down for the first time and I tied a deceiver style pattern. It's about 10 inches long on a one-aught mustad saltwater hook, but... You know, I feel guilty using a hook that big on a fish. Like I said, it's bad enough I'm dragging him through the water and scaring the crap out of him. But to leave him, and I don't know if those big holes in their cheeks heal. I don't know how long it takes. Do they get infected? You know, our water here and around D.C. has got so much antibiotics in it, they're probably not getting infected. We do have catfish that look like people put their cigars out on them. they got some nasty lesions, but that's ethics of what we put in our water, not ethics of fishing. Uh, big saltwater hooks, they will rust out. So let's say you do end up cutting the hook. It'll rust out not too long. Even if it's um, stainless steel, eventually saltwater will rust out and that fish should be good to go. Limit the amount of trebles. I hate seeing bass fishing shows and guys on the river using some bait. And I pull them out all the time. That's got three treble hooks on it. So you hook the fish in the mouth with two to three hooks, but then... It's got one stuck in its forehead and its eye and its fin. There's still a lot of hooks that are flapping around and they get hooks somewhere else on the fish. It's bad enough you're hooking them, you know, a couple times in the mouth, but the rest, there's no sporting in throwing. That's why I like fly fishing. Why do you fly fish? Well, I'm using six pound tippet and a hook the size of a grain of rice. I'm not going out there with 80 pound braided, um, line with something with nine laser sharp points on it that can't be broken off that's going to mangle the fish it's more of a challenge you know it's like uh say hey how'd you get that hot girlfriend of yours well you know uh i use use roofies that's all i got her to hang out with me tonight yeah it's like dude use your use your uh machismo and your skill to, to get the hot chick don't uh don't go after the super drunk girl or girl or something that's got no inhibitions it's called challenge in life i like a challenge if the fish swallows cut as much of that line as possible hopefully it's barbless and it might be able to cough it up or it might slide or wedge out by itself but i always feel bad when you've got that fish that's hooked deep and there's blood coming out of the gills and you got to just cut the line but see if you can reach down there as far as you can i once caught a fish on 11 mile canyon on my bacon streamer and it had a bait hook sticking out of its mouth with this huge gumball size piece of lead split shot that it must have been dragging around for I don't know how long. The fish's mouth was actually completely deformed where it had been dragging this thing all around. I don't know if the person broke off the line or if they cut the line or what, but I was able it's always good you always feel good when you catch a fish that's got like a hook stuck in it and you can take the hook out and let it go. But hopefully that fish, you know, had a nice long life afterwards. There's pictures of it somewhere on the websites. And use a hook file to keep those hooks sharp. So they go in easier and they come out easier. Simple as that. Have a hook file. They're not that expensive. You'll notice that if you sharpen your hooks more often, you're going to get better hookups. You'll lose less fish. And honestly, I can't tell you the last time I said, 
dag nabbit, I lost that fish because the it was a barbless hook. The only default I had with barbless hooks, pre-made barbless hooks, you can't use dropper flies on them because they slide off the bend. If you smash the barb down, there's just a little tiny lip that that dropper loop will hang on to. But yeah, those saber pre-barbless hooks can't use them as as uh, top flies with a dropper below them. I honestly can't say any of the steelhead I lost up in New York were because uh, the hooks were barbless. There was a lot of people up there. I took flies out of fish, and it was much more difficult. It required the fish to be in our grasps longer, in the net longer, thrashing around longer to get that hook out. And sometimes you can't get it out, and you got to let the fish go with the hook in its maw. So barbless, definitely. All right, fighting fish. Don't overplay that fish. Lactic acid builds up in them very quickly, and it can cause to death. Fish can literally fight themselves to death. Don't break. No, do break off a fish if a shark or another predator is coming after it. Yeah, we'll say, hey, you might catch a little white perch on the Potomac, and a largemouth bass is going to come out and eat it. And Well, if you want it to actually eat it and land that bigger fish, let some slack line go. It'll swallow it, but... That's not always ethical. So what you can do, if it's like a bonefish or a tarpon and there's a hammerhead coming, be ethical. Break that fish off. It's better for that fish to be able to swim free than get eaten. The problem is it may have exhausted itself so much already in that fight. It may not be able to be faster than the lemon or hammerhead shark or gray reef or bull shark that's coming after it. So, yeah, break off a fish that is going to be terminally destroyed if that's redundant uh so be it but yeah just be ethical about it foul hooked fish don't catch you don't take pictures of steelhead that have a fly sticking out of its forehead or fin it's just not ethical yeah you you can't do it it's it's unethical you can't go and post that online be like sup bro check out the big fish i caught man and then yeah we're and you you might know it was hooked in the ass but other people don't It's not ethical. So don't take pictures of foul-hooked fish. Try and break off foul-hooked fish. In certain states and commonwealths, it is illegal to land a foul-hooked fish. Don't fish for stressed fish. If it's a drought and the fish are stressed because the water is low, if it's warm, remember warm water holds less oxygen, so these fish are gasping for breath. It's like uh, somebody stuck in a trunk in a movie for a certain amount of time and they're going to suffocate if someone doesn't open it and get the fresh oxygen soon. It's just like that. There's a movie I'm thinking of where they're in some kind of chamber and the oxygen's running out. It's not Strange Brew where he gets stuck in the beer vat. Spaceballs? Is that the one where they're they're like snarfing Perrier? I want to say it's, it's Spaceballs with the Druish princess and... Prince um, Valium. That was a movie that, you know, there's no oxygen, so they were, like, falling asleep. All right, good tangent. So trout in warm weather are going to have their faces in... They're going to look for colder water in cold springs. I just got done with um, Fly Rod and Reel with a John Gyrak story where he says there's a little, you know, 30 minute lake or pond it takes him 30 minutes to walk around and he always feels guilty trying to fish for the fish in the hot of the summer that are faced right into that biggest spring where the cold most oxygenated water is coming out it's unethical and he admitted it in the story and that's good for him so hopefully other people won't be fishing for stressed fish and that also means you know brook trout in the mountains in late summer you don't want to play a fish in deoxygenated water because once you put them back, it's pretty damn hard for them to recover and get that oxygen back. Cold water has more oxygen. I don't know if I mentioned this before. Um, I mentioned sharks in that bit, but never land a heavy shark. I And if you want to see some awful shark pictures, there's a guy called Mark the Shark. I mean, he puts the worst name and the guy follows me on Instagram, and I, I want to say, like, I completely disagree with your ethics 
it's him. He's got bleach blonde hair on his boat, and he's Mark the Shark. And it's pictures of scantily clad girls with hammerheads, and they're always hanging by their head where it's like a noose around it, and it's cut into them, and they're bleeding all over the boat. And it's, yeah, dude, we killed this monster shark. Yeah, dude, that's like about the worst thing for the environment you can do is taking an apex predator out that has the harmony and balance of the ecosystem behind it. It's unethical. So go look up Mark the Shark. He's got some heinous ratings on like Yelp, which I would think Yelp now, you're no longer to anonymously post, but apparently... He was bored one day and went back early, and he threw his his like styrofoam Starbucks cup over the side of the boat. And it's like, it's trash is going to end up in the ocean anyway. But it's the pictures. So the reason why you don't take sharks out of the water is they have a non-skeletal body. Their body is made of cartilaginous material, like your ear and your nose. And when they're in the water, they're neutrally buoyant, which means there's no gravity affecting them. When you take a shark out of the water all that gravity is putting stress on their internal organs and can cause a lot of damage plus you put them in a boat with hard sides and bottoms and they're thrashing against it that's how they're going to rupture their internal organs they have no skeleton and they can't protect themselves against the hard structures that they are battling against now yes mako sharks will jump into your boat that you're not even fighting that's just a mako shark. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about dragging a cartilaginous fish out of the water onto hard, wet sand or putting it in the back of a pickup truck and driving it around to display it. Or if you remember the movie Ruskies with Joaquin Phoenix and Dolph Lagren, when that guy's pouring beer on the stingray and Dolph Lagren goes over and beats the tar out of him. That's what you should not be doing unless you're Dolph Lagren. But yeah, sharks need our respect. I personally don't target sharks. When I'm fly fishing, that's more because I don't see them. But I grew up with sharks being about as damn important as your grandparents in that respect. That they are everything in the ocean. And the fact that we kill 13 million or billion of them a year is just absolutely stupid so that's my anti shark rant so yes sharks break them off don't pull them out bigger they are the heavier they're going to be more stressed on their internal organs you know let me punch you in the gut and see how it feels that's what it feels like for a fish to be out of the water that doesn't have a skeleton think about the gary larson cartoon of the boneless chicken farm and it's just these deflated chickens on the ground that's what sharks are all right, landing and handling. Uh, one day we'll probably just leave all the fish in the water and take the hook out. Our generation, my generation, it's cameras, it's iPhones, it's the grip and grin. At some point, you do see that angler that doesn't even take his fish out of the water, not even his steelhead. It's the mental picture. It's he or she knows that they did the hard work and they just take their hemostats, pop the hook out, and let that fish go never even touching it with their hands. And I think that's something that we may have to go to in the future. It's ethical that we're not taking this fish out and we're not abusing them further when they're out of their natural environment. All right, that's when I say don't land sharks in my notes. Have wet hands. Fish have a slime on them. It's protective. It allows them to glide through the water with less friction on them. If you've ever... Um, seen a swimmer that shaves their body hair, it's to reduce friction. If you've ever tried to get a greased watermelon out of a pool, same thing. It's super slippery. It's mucosal coating. It also prevents bacteria and parasites from getting on them. Now, they will resecrete it, and I'm not talking about the snakeheads that when you pull them out or hagfish that just secrete a gallon of snot. I'm talking about salmon, steelhead, trout, bluegill, bass, shad, Gizzard shad, which have the nastiest slime of all time. It's have wet hands, so your abrasive hands or your gloves. I mean, I'm guilty of that. You see pictures of me holding fish with fleece or wool gloves on, and that does damage them. Use the landing nets with the soft bags because it it's less abrasive on them, so it's not scraping their scales off. It's not scraping the slime off of them. 
and it just keeps them healthier and more protected when you put them back in their environment. Use a landing glove if you can. You heard us talk about that on the Steelhead Alley Flies podcast. I got one, and it does greatly improve your grip on the fish, which keeps them from thrashing about and injuring themselves further. Don't drop fish on the rocks. We talked about this in that podcast with autumnsirenflies.blogspot.com that handle them over water so if they do jerk, you don't drop them and they bang their head on the rocks. Don't drag them through mud. If you don't have a net and you've got to beach them, try not to do it in murky water where you're kicking up all sorts of abrasive things that are going to get in their gills and against their eyes. Gills are very sensitive. Our lungs are internal so they don't get things. But imagine if you inhaled a bunch of gravel. It's going to freaking hurt. Same thing with fish. Their gills are external because they're bathed in oxygenated water. That's just the way they evolved. And if you're kicking around silt and sand and grit, it's all going to be abrasive on their gills, on their bodies. It's not good. So don't drag them if you can prevent it. One thing I don't like is seeing people holding fish by the gills. I think that's more of an older thing and that as we become more ethical, more educated as anglers, you're not going to be holding your bass by the gills. That's like me reaching down your throat and holding you by your alveoli and your bronchioli and your whatever. Um, Don't do it. Even if you plan on, I guess, killing the fish, you can do that, but... Definitely, if you're going to release a fish, why mangle its gills like that? That's just further cruelty to the fish. I don't like pictures. Like, literally, I don't like them on social media if you're not holding the fish ethically. I don't, I'm not going to like it if you um, are doing something unethical. I'm probably not going to call you out, but that's just my way of protesting you. I'm not going to give you a like if you're doing that. Don't take fish out of the water if it's below freezing or do it extremely quickly. If it's cold enough that when you step out, your waders and shoelaces freeze instantly, think about what the gills and eyes and other parts of that fish are going to do and what long-term effects that you're not going to see when you put that fish in. This time of year, we just had the Arctic. What was that thing? The polar vortex. The polar vortex just came through, and everyone's out because we got to go fishing, and it's um, it's cold out, man. It was like six degrees here the other day. I wanted to go carp fishing. My plan was not to take the fish out of the water if I caught them because they would be in 65-degree water going into six-degree air. But because Fairfax County schools are raising our children to be wusses, my daughter didn't have school on Tuesday. So she stayed home, and I, I'm not taking her fishing in six-degree weather, especially because I don't want her on my back. She's almost 30 pounds now, and after throwing my back out last month, I don't want that to happen again. So no kid on my back. So if it's below freezing, try not to take your fish out of the water. A lot of people are saying fish pictures are better if you're not doing the grip and grin, if you just have the fish halfway in, halfway out. That's more ethical. They their gills will crystallize, and I can't imagine how awful that feels. Boga grips, I've I don't have Boga brand. I've got Berkeley, I've got knockoff ones, but they do keep your fish from thrashing around a lot. Just make sure that they're not thrashing to get the rid of the Boga grips too much because that's going to cause long term damage. They're flopping around left and right and twisting their head. You know, grab them by the tail and and keep them from flopping around. There are certain fish that if you flip them upside down, they kind of go to sleep. I had a a pet chicken named Camilla in high school, and she was a very fun chicken. She liked to sit on my knees when I was driving my stick shift, and she would try to fly when I pushed down the clutch, and my leg would go down, and she'd try to fly up. Um, Camilla, where's I going with this? Oh, yes, you could take Camilla and cover her head, and she would fall right asleep. It's the same thing with fish. If you some of them, you flip them over, they just kind of go to sleep and stop moving. So if you are going to keep the fish, what are you going to do with it? Let's talk about fish retention. Don't put them on a stringer if you plan to release them later. That's further damage to their gills. It's going to be abrasive. Don't put them in the live well if you plan on releasing them later. I don't understand putting fish in bags 
and then weighing them and then dumping them in a back in a part of the water where they're not from. That still bothers me with the fishing tournaments. There was a guy who caught a, you know, like 30 perch one day and some crappy and posted on the local forum. And he got reamed because everyone said, you know, why are you putting those fish in there? And they didn't look too happy. They were kind of belly up and, He's like, oh, don't worry. You know, I, I released them. And then everyone's like, oh, do you release those fish? They were all pale and nasty looking. You probably did more damage by just keeping them in there to take the picture than if you would just let them go. Don't throw fish on the shore if you plan on releasing them. I don't know if I told you about the uh, Kuwaiti Nationals I took out last summer. It, it was the weirdest thing. I, I'll tell a story now. I don't know if I did. I think this was going to be part two of guide stories, but... My morning client canceled, so I come home. Like They never even showed up. It was a Canadian lady. And I'm on the couch taking a nap, and I get a phone call. Hello, we're outside. We'd like to go fishing. And I'm just like, huh, what? I'm kind of in a daze from my nap. And, and I'm like, oh, okay, so where are you now? And we're at you know Hazeltine Court in Annandale. And the family actually drove to my condo complex, and we're waiting outside. So I'm a little confused. I go outside, and... It's like a clown car. There's like eight people that get out, and the dad's like, "Hello, we're, you know, we're foreign. We're in town. We'd like to go fishing for three hours. You know, like six of us or whatever. We pay cash." And he shows me this wad of cash. I was like, "Oh, um, yeah, well, okay. My afternoon's free, and it's all kids. So we decide I'm going to take them to Reston. We fish from shore. So we go. Th- we we drive to Reston. I follow them there. It's hot out, but he's like, "Yeah, we're from." We're from Kuwait. You know, the humidity is weird, but other than that, it doesn't bother us. And so we, we, I teach them how to cast and we split up along the shoreline and I walk around the bend and I see the, the kid with my net with like a 12, 13 inch largemouth in it. And it's like, you know, it's about a hundred degrees that day. So the fish is pretty desiccated. It's dried out. It's eyes are cloudy. And, and the dad's like, we're going to cook it. And I'm kind of like, well, we release all of our fish. It's part of my policy, except for snakeheads. And thinking like this fish is not going to feed his whole family. I think they said they're on vacation, so they probably don't have a kitchen. So I'm a little baffled. And the fish looks dead. I mean, it's not even moving. And the mom comes around the bend and she's like, oh, my God, what are you doing? We are not keeping that fish. So she starts going off on her husband. And um, so they want to just throw the fish back in. And somehow you know, I go to the shady spot of the lake and. We dip the fish in and it starts moving a little bit. So we sit there and kind of just hold the fish in the water and kind of drag it forward, get some oxygenated water through its gills. And after about a minute or two, the thing actually like woke up and like that deer in the backseat and Tommy boy and moved on. You don't want to throw that fish on shore or put it in your bucket or just keep it out of the water and further damage it. If you're not planning on eating it, it's just cruel to the fish, further cruelty and just it's unethical. How many times have I said unethical so far on this podcast? Someone's got to have like a little little dinger going. Uh, let's talk about photographing fish. Don't keep them out too long. Some fish are more delicate than others. Like bluegill, you can keep them out for a long time and they're not going to die. But there's trout species that if you keep them out for a little bit, you're going to kill them. We already said keep the fish over water. So if you drop it, it's not going to fall and bang its head and die. Uh, I also want to talk about setting the hook earlier. I set the hook on a bluegill once and the fish flew at us and it just hit the pontoon on the boat and it died. Like it just started twitching and it wouldn't recover and we just put it back in the water and it just floated and twitched until something like a turtle came by and ate it. So at least I felt better that the fish got eaten and it just died out of my stupidity. But uh, yeah, so try not to drop your fish. The photographer needs to be ready when you take your fish out of the water. So don't be holding it, waiting for the person to be adjusting the light and focusing and spot metering and what other photography things they're doing at the time. You need them to say, okay, I'm ready. And then you pick the fish up out of the water, keep the fish wet, have a net underneath it or keep it in the net, whatever you're doing, you don't work. The person with the fish doesn't work on the photographer's schedule. They work on yours. So you have that fish wet. They're like, okay, go. You pull the fish out. And now the smartphones will do the burst shot. 
DSLRs will do that where you press the shutter and it takes like five or six pictures. I always tell people when we're still fishing, like take 10 pictures, take 20. I don't care. Take it. Just, just keep hitting it because one of those is going to come out unless you're a famous fly fishing photographer or you do it a lot. Most people aren't getting a very good angle or whatever to get a good photograph. What you need to do is just take a whole bunch of pictures very quickly. Maybe put the fish back in, let it recover, do it again, but not for too long. And for those of you who are putting the fly rod on your shoulder to take the pictures, you know I don't like that. That's just, it's too contrived, it's too posed, especially if you're on land. Who's doing that? Is it you that's putting the rod up there and making sure it's balanced, or is it the photographer or a third party? Either way, it's taking too much time. Get the fish back in the water. You know, I'm not going to like it on any social media sites. Are you doing it because you don't want your reel to get wet because it's uh, freezing out? I don't know. But if it's in the summertime and you're on land, I just don't get it. Let's just start a campaign. No more fly rods balanced on the shoulders for pictures. Thank you. Don't put the fish on dry rocks to photograph it yourself. Guilty. My hands up. I've put them. I've wetted the rocks usually, but you can go through my old pictures and see them in the net, on rocks, on ice, on sand, in the snow. And who wants to photograph a sand-covered fish? It's going to stick to the slime, and it's going to be an awful picture. You want a nice reflection coming off the fish. You even want some water dripping off the fish. That makes a really cool shot. Don't put the fish down on hard surfaces, hot surfaces. My old drift boat would get so hot in the summer. You would put the fish down and it was like they were like bacon in a frying pan. I always felt guilty. Don't put them down on frozen surfaces where they might stick. Somebody posted a picture today from Instagram from like Idaho where a fish in a hatchery had jumped out and it literally stuck to the side of the hatchery and froze to death there. Because it frozen things stick. You got a ice cube stuck on your tongue before or a popsicle. Frozen things will stick if they're warm. If you take a fish that's in a tailwater or spring creek where the water's warmer and you put them on a frozen rock, they might stick to that rock. Don't put fish down on the muddy shores to self-photograph. The best way to self-photograph a fish is hold it out with your other hand. Longer arms are better. Take a picture with them. You're Get a nice watch if you want your watch band in the picture. Um, you can lip them. I don't know if we talked about lipping. If not, I'll get to that later. But yeah, there's a whole other ethics involved with lipping fish. Don't lip snappers. You'll learn the hard way. They got sharp teeth. Try not to hold them by the mouth, which puts... Yeah, okay, so here it is. So photographing. When you're lipping, we do that mostly with bass, sunfish family members, where you put them in and you hold the fish out closer to the camera to make the fish look big. They're saying now don't hold the fish at a certain angle. I want to say it's like 30 degrees because you're putting all of the weight on that fish on its jaw and its mandible bone, and it could dislocate it. It could further damage them. So there's ethics involved with just lipping a fish in general. Releasing the fish. Revive them. Don't just. There's only one type of fish you could just throw back in. Those are like the scombridge, the tuna, the mackerel, bonitos. You have to throw them in. Those fish don't know how to start to swim from being stationary. So you you take your hand off them. They have to be thrown in like at a 45-degree angle. So they're already started when they hit the water. They're ready to go. Don't let a fish go if it's not ready. If they start floating, if they start going belly up, if they start rolling, that's a key that that fish is in poor shape and shouldn't be released. Hold them longer. Don't pull them back and forth by their tail. Oxygen and water is not made to go backwards into their gills. It's made to come from their mouth through their gills. It's not made to come in from the back. So don't be sloshing them back and forth. Just put them in. If you want to drag them by their mouth through the water or in the net to get some oxygen and water in, do that. But if they start rolling, you need to hold them for longer. Stay with that fish. That if I had like a GoPro going when I filmed that bull trout in Idaho, it would have run out of batteries. I mean, it took me 30 plus minutes and that water was ice cold. So I had to switch hands, left hand or right hand, and just hold that fish. And finally, it told me when it was ready to go. It did a good arch of its back, kicked its tail, let it do that a couple times so you can make sure it's ready to be, go back. It's recuperated, it's resuscitated. 
Try not to drop them. We already said that. Uh, releasing them. Be careful. Don't drop them. Just all these things you can do. And don't give a fish to somebody who's going to scream and drop it. I can't tell you how many times someone's like, oh, I can hold this fish. And then they scream and drop it. I've had clients that don't even want to touch the fish. So I'll hold the fish in front of them and photograph them. There was my client who couldn't be photographed because of his line of work. So I actually held the fish in front of his face and took the picture. Killing fish. So if you are going to kill it and eat it, do it quickly. Don't make that fish suffer. Don't just let it sit on the shore and suffocate to death. You could do what Tom refers to as BFR, big F word rock, where you put the fish down and bash it over the head. We've learned that's the easiest way to kill the northern snakehead. I have the aluminum fish bat from Bass Pro Shops. It takes seven to eight hits as hard as you can hit a snakehead to kill it. There is the combo tool, K-O-M-B-O. I guess it's for combination tool. I just got that. It's a club that has a fillet knife inside of it. It's bright yellow. I saw them at ICAST, IFTD. I know they just did a Groupon. They may still be going on, but you can bash the life out of your fish and fillet it later or just straight up cut the damn thing's head off. Now, people always talk about like sticking the knife in the back of the head and severing the the spine. I don't know about that. And speaking of spine, there was a study in the Fly Fishing Magazine years ago that said fish and or vertebrates in general, those organisms with backbones, pain is relative to length of spine. What is it? Length of spine, not to to brain size. So a big brain with a long nerve cord, dosonotocord, is gonna Organism is going to feel more pain. So small little fish probably aren't feeling a whole lot. You can also buy a preacher, which is a stick to bash them on the head. There is that part from the John Gyrak book where he was in the UK and he's like, let's bonk him on the head. But bonk there has a sexual term innuendo to it. So you don't want to bonk a fish. Yes. All right. Hooks. That's redundant. Spawning. So let the fish do their thing. I mentioned in the Shad Run podcast that, yeah, these fish are trying to spawn, yet we are throwing hooks in front of them left and right. Um, it's kind of unethical, yeah, but we do it. Don't move a fish off its nest where other fish will eat their eggs or their young. So when you when there's a bluegill or a largemouth bass sitting on their nest and you're like, hey, man, this is the best time of year to catch a bass. You got an eight-pound female. Spawn it on the nest. Well, when you they bite out of aggression because they're protecting their babies. When you pull that fish off its nest, there's no, there, that fish is there to guard its young, its offspring, its progeny. When you remove that fish from that protective spot, other fish are going to come in and eat the babies. So, hey, man, you caught a nice eight-pound bass, but you just probably took 100 bass out of the equation, the next generation, the future eight pound bass it's unethical and you know the fish are on their nests or reds because it's a clear patch of grant uh granules sand silt it's gonna be white they've been fanning it they've been keeping it clean so it's not the part where the algae settled and the sediments there it's gonna be a bright white patch it's called a red r-e-d-d even though it's usually white or it's just a clean spot there are fish called like central stone rollers and other uh fish in I don't want to say the cyprinid family. Catostomidae, maybe? Catostomids? That have um, tubercles, little uh, like houser's bumps on their heads. The males will get those for moving rocks, the central stone roller. And they use those to move the rocks and make their nests when it's time to spawn. And I don't like when people say, and this is a jerk thing I'm going to say, hey, man, check out my, my rainbow bass in its spawning colors in October. Rainbow bass spawn in the spring. Hey, man, check out my brook trout spawning colors. It's April. Well, that's just a brightly colored brook trout. Um, They spawn in the fall. That's when they're going to have brighter colors to impress the ladies. But that's just me saying it because maybe I know when fish spawn. If someone took a picture of some fish that I've never fished for, that I don't know how to fish for, and 
I would say, man, that fish is brilliantly colored. And then the guy at the fly shop would be like, Moron, that fish isn't spawning. That's what they normally look like. They spawn in July. So I, eventually I'm going to get what's coming to me, being obnoxious about that. Uh, what else about spawning fish? Yeah, they need their energy to be having sexual relations, to spawn. They need that energy to protect their young, to dig nests, not to be burning all their calories, getting ripped through the water by a sharp hook and you. So sometimes think about that being ethical when they need to be getting something done. But then again, if you find a snakehead that's protecting its young, apparently if you throw a fly in the melee of all those babies coming up to breathe, mama snakehead's going to bite. That's just what I've heard. I've never seen it. Hopefully we'll see it this year. The new boat's coming soon and hopefully we'll be out more often in the spring. Uh, don't walk on in through near gravel that's been overturned by fish for spawning. You know, the ethics of the Shenandoah National Park and brook trout around here is to avoid them at all costs during the spawning season. That's just sort of the ethics that have been bred throughout anglers and fly shops and internet forums will just further reinforce that. I don't know if I said this earlier, but when I mentioned that, you know, like the cutthroat, the greenbacks are in one place and then you introduce the fish. So you got all these Eastern brook trout living out there competing for the resources and space that the native fish are going for. Those are the ones you probably want to take out, eat, bonk on the head, feed to the, the birds. And I used to catch bluegill all the time as a kid, my grandparents in Florida and feed them to the egrets and anahingas and cormorants and pelicans. But yeah, if you're coming to a river that's full of non-native fish and they're threatened or endangered fish in there, it's a good steward. It's a good thing to remove those fish that don't belong. They're out competing what should be there. That brings us to the last and final bullet point of being a good steward. Pack out what you pack in. Don't litter. Don't trespass. Don't go through people's backyards where you're just going to ruin it for everybody else. Don't leave your garbage where it's going to ruin it for everybody else. It's one thing to, you know, be a jerk and then ruin it for everybody else. The lower black hole on the salmon river used to have some fantastic pocket water for steelhead in the fall. Can't fish it anymore. It's private. You got to pay, pay to play because the landowners were sick and tired of people being bad stewards. And I just, I don't understand how you can be raised to leave litter behind beer cans, campfires. I mean, the amount of crap we find during the shad run on the Potomac is mind boggling. It's it's embarrassing for me as a guide to take my clients out and have to deal with a pile of feces on the trail, um, just discarded fish heads from the night before. So it's good to clean up. I usually try to clean up my guiding areas. That's one of the benefits of being in the boat is you don't get stuck on shore, but you'll see things floating by, and we, we tend to grab floating beer cans and plastic and, and other junk that floats by you. It's a good thing to have a nice long net to scoop it out. So pick up litter when you can. Carry a trash bag with you. It doesn't take up much space. Carry in an empty on your way out. Pick up garbage, especially if you live in an area where you get a deposit, five or ten cents a can. That's beer money. That's gas money. That is fly time material money. Educate others. Just be like, hey, man, you know why you got to do that? Why can't you, you pack out your uh, your can of nightcrawlers there? Or, oh, by the way, you I think you dropped something there when someone flicks a cigarette butt in. Make it known to them that you don't like what they're doing and it's ruining it for everyone else. Call and report illegal activity. I've called and reported things before and people on the other line are like, yeah, we don't have wardens that live up there, or we don't know where you're calling from. We don't know that body of water. In that case, is it sucks, maybe just call the cops and give them your, your location. But it's awesome if you can call in illegal activity and bust somebody. We do that during the Shad Run. We call the feds, and last year was very difficult because they were furloughed. And there just weren't any cops to come down and bust people. But you will see them. You know when the cops are, are walking up river because there's all sorts of people running out with bags of endangered and threatened fish that you're not allowed to keep. And they've got spears and javelins and pitchforks and snagging rigs and rods. And the term, I think I've used it before, it's, it's a not nice term, but a Cuban yo-yo. It's a hand line. 
It's a term given to the Cuban immigrants that live in Miami area that use like a Gatorade jug off of a, a bridge and they just throw it and then reel it back onto the jug. But that's illegal to use on the Potomac. And what people do is they use it once and drop it and walk out. And birds get caught up in that line. There's a pictures. You've probably seen it of like a blue heron that got caught in some line up in a tree and is just dangling dead. I saw a sea lion in the Galapagos that had monofilament around its neck that had gotten there pretty young and had grown. And it was just like raw meat and blood just sticking out. So, yeah, I mean, if you just see monofilament, just cut it. I carry a machete in the spring to look intimidating. So when I yell at somebody, be like, hey, man, you can't do that. Well, I'm not intimidating. I'm kind of a skinny guy, and I don't have any jujitsu and martial arts like like our buddy Trent at Orvis in Bethesda. I can't do anything. You know, I got to call the cops if someone confronts me. But I got a big knife to cut monofilament. Because people use like 80-pound mono and just break off and leave it dangling from trees and in their water. And I got to clean it all up. And that big knife helps me to do that. It's my jungle primitive SOG machete knife. It's awesome. And we keep the um, George Washington Memorial Parkway police officers and the U.S. Park police officers on speed dial. Their numbers are usually posted at the trailheads. And you can call them and hopefully they'll be there soon. And they can um, bust people that are doing illegal things. And also, just be cool. Don't harass wildlife. There's a, a video that they used to show at our beer tie. These two dudes in, and I think Dalton went to school with one of the guys at Greensboro, or not Greensboro, Chapel Hill. He's one of them Tar Heel guys. And they're like fishing, fly fishing in New Zealand. And they put on like a wolf costume and start chasing these sheep through some dude's pasture. It's like, why? Why harass those sheep that did nothing to you? Why do you got to be obnoxious? You know, I'll pull down my window and and like go to a horse or when I see cows on Mossy Creek, but I'm not like throwing snowballs at them. We did throw snowballs at that duck that one time, but it was the biggest duck you've ever seen. You're going to have to go back and listen to that podcast. And he was messing up our fishing. We did throw it like to hit him just to move him. But yeah, don't harass the wildlife. Leave the squirrels and the deer and the beavers and snakes alone. If you don't like snakes, who cares? Don't don't throw rocks at them. Just leave them alone. They're not doing anything to you. So that's going to round it out. We hit our hour mark on this podcast of fishing ethics. If I can remember some other things I forgot to mention, I will try and do so. But the next podcast is going to be recorded on Monday at the Beer Tie with Matt Miles, M-A-T-T-M-I-L-E-S. He's a guide western trained living in virginia and he does musky and large and smallmouth trout and striped bass fishing around central virginia so we're going to sit down with him after the beer tie hopefully won't be too tired see if we can knock out a podcast and like i said the big somerset one's coming up it looks like davenport and i are going to drive up for the full weekend i will be in and out of the project healing waters booth i'll have my project healing waters guide shirt on with my name I'll be the dude with the netbook and the microphone. So please stop by, say hello. I will put you on the podcast if you stop me and I've got the microphone. I've already got Andrea Larco and um, Snowman Custom Rodworks lined up through social media. Talk to them. We're going to have them on the podcast and who knows what else will happen. So, Jason, hope you're staying warm up there after the polar vortex. And I will see you in Lancaster coming up soon. All right, everyone, thank you so much for downloading. And again, if you need some custom flies for the spring run, let me know. I'm very glad to hear that I've been booking some clients from out of town that listen to the podcast. That is awesome. And I'm going to try and get the Snow White Damselfly tutorial how-to up on YouTube and even on a download podcast. Um, Hashtag Year of the Damsel. All right, Jason, take it away. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.